Good morning. How is everyone? Good. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Starting in verse 13. It says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege to come before you today and lift up our voices to talk and sing about how great you are. I pray for our conversations um, after the service today that they would be sweet and pleasing to you, that we would look to be encouragers, that we would look to minister your truth to our brothers and sisters. And Lord, now we ask for your blessing upon the preaching of your word. We pray you continue to be here among us, fill us with your spirit so that we can hear rightly from you, that we can take the truth of you and apply them to our hearts. Thank you, God, that we are blessed by you in so many different ways, that we have the riches of Christ, multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for us, for your death on the cross, for showing that you have victory over the grave and for giving us life in you and through you. Bless our time now as we continue on. We pray this with the authority we have in Jesus. Amen. Well, there is a lot of theology in these five verses that's going on, and it's kind of like a, a mini systematic theology that's been laid out for us. And it's actually quite deep. In fact, if this is all we had, um, when, you, when you paired away a lot of the scriptures, if we just had these five verses, we'd actually have a whole lot of theology given to us. And I like the fact that Paul doesn't hold back with this fledgling church. I mean, it's young, it's new, and they're still in spiritual diapers. But how does Paul treat them? He's like, let's get to some serious theology. So this whole section is, is really concluding the previous 12 verses that we've been looking at. And the focus really takes us to the, the very first word in the last verse here, verse 17, comfort. The NIV says encourage, that, that's fine. But comfort, that's really everything that he's taught so far in chapter 2 leads us to this final encouragement and exhortation for us to take and apply to ourselves. But why comfort? We're going to see 
We're going to see, well, we're going to see, when we're finished with the next two weeks, we're going to see three reasons why. Today we'll see two of them. Why comfort? One, because of who God is. Two, because of what God has done. And three, because of what God will do. So let's look at because of who God is. Notice what Paul has already instructed the Thessalonians regarding who God is back in chapter 1. He tells them that God is a God who judges righteously. He looks at verse 5 and says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So God is a God who judges righteously. Remember what Abraham appeals to God when he comes to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He's like, will not the judge of all the earth do what? Do what is right. He appeals to him. God, are you, you going to do what is right? He appeals to his justice. So we know that who God is, well, one, he is a God who judges righteously. If you are found in Christ, then he will judge you accordingly. Your sins are forgiven on judgment day. You have nothing to be afraid of. Why? Because Christ will be there standing in your place. He's a God who judges righteously. If you don't have Christ, if you haven't trusted in him, then on judgment day you'll have to account for your own sins, and really you'll have to atone for them through an eternity in hell. So God judges righteously. But also look what he says two verses later. He grants relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So God is a God who sees the, the afflictions. Think of, of, of Egypt with the Israelites. What does he say time and time again? I see the afflictions of my people. I see the afflictions of my people. I see the afflictions. I have not forgotten. And then what's his response? So I'm going to do something about it. I see him. I haven't forgotten. And I am going to act. So God grants relief to those who are afflicted. Who are the afflicted? Well, in the case of the Thessalonians, it's the Thessalonian church. They're afflicted. We've looked at that previously. They're afflicted by the world. They're afflicted by the enemy. But notice elsewhere in Scripture, we get this um, clear picture that God is a God who wants to comfort his people. The, the, the well-known psalm, Psalm 23, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, what do they do? They comfort me. Now we're going to be looking at um, a couple Old Testament passages here. This word comfort in, um, that we see in verse 16, the eternal comfort, and then in 17, comfort your hearts. It's the Greek word uh, parakaleo. And the Jews back then, and I've said this before, but I know we got some new people, so I'll, you'll hear me say it actually on a pretty regular basis. Um, think of, of trying to be a, a Gentile convert in Thessalonica and wanting to read the Old Testament. It's a little challenging if you don't know Hebrew, right? Right? What's the common language back then? Greek, right? The, the Koine Greek, the common Greek. It was the vernacular. It's actually the reason that Paul writes the New Testament in Greek, right? You want to get the message out as far as possible? Let's write it in the language that the vast majority of people know. You want to get a message out today to as many people as possible? I mean, English would be a good choice. Chinese might be a second. <clears throat> so, 
Um, here, when he says comfort in Psalm 23, uh, the Greek Old Testament, which was, was written and used pretty much on a regular basis by the Jews, definitely by the Gentile converts, but even by Paul himself. So when, when you're looking at different words, actually one of the best commentaries on the New Testament is actually the Greek Old Testament. Why? Because any Jew would have been well-versed well-versed, really not so much in the Hebrew Old Testament. They were starting to lose that, especially as, as the diaspora occurred, as they spread out. But they would have known their Greek Old Testament. Okay? Any of you know your Greek New Testament? No, but hopefully you know your English New Testament. Right? Same idea. Okay? Paul gives it in Greek. Um, I, I'm not sure if anyone here uh, knows Greek, maybe save myself. But the point is, I mean, you can have your English Bible and, and do really well, right? Amen? Do you need to know Greek? No. Do you need to know Hebrew? No. That's what I'm here for, by the way. <laughs> so they, they had started to lose the ability to read the Hebrew Old Testament, but they had the Greek, which they knew quite well. This were all that to say, because I'm going to make a couple points today that are key, this being one of them. In Psalm 23, when it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, it's the same word that we just saw in 2 Thessalonians. I mean, there's this kind of theme woven throughout. God is a God who comforts. He sees affliction, just like he saw with the Thessalonians, just like he saw with the Israelites. And what does he do? He brings rescue, he brings redemption, he brings salvation, and he brings comfort. He brings comfort. So he's a God who comforts. Look uh, just briefly at 2 Corinthians 1. We'll see the apostles say it quite plainly to us. He starts out, 2 Corinthians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice what he says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all what? Comfort. The God of all comfort. And he continues on, who comforts us in our affliction. Oh, that's what we were just talking about, right? What's he doing to the Thessalonians? He's comforting them in their affliction. What's he doing with the Israelites? Comforting them. What does he do for us? Comforts us. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. I mean, the things kind of go in hand together here as, as Paul's pointing out. Sufferings, we're sharing in Christ's sufferings. A lot of people don't like that part of the gospel message. Like sufferings, like, oh, that's a bad word. No. Like, that's part and parcel with the Christian walk. Suffering with Christ. That's a whole other sermon, but it's there. So suffering with, with Christ, but guess what? Suffering and comfort. What kind of comfort? We share abundantly in comfort. Not just like, you know, here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, hold on a second, I'm going to take a little sip. Like a little sip of comfort. No. It's abundant. 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 Overflowing. Overflowing. That's what he's doing for us. But also, think more specifically of this. Comfort comes from God, but it actually comes from the third member of the Trinity, specifically. 
He is the Comforter. John gives us this information, quoting Jesus. If you look there, I want you to see it. It's in John 14. In John 14, this is Jesus speaking. In verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Some versions say advocate. Some versions say comforter. Now, now God could have chosen to, to reveal himself and use different descriptive words, all sorts of different words. Okay? But how many times does he say, I'm going to give you another helper or another comforter? All the different words he could have chosen, God's saying, hey, the Holy Spirit, he's the comforter. It's the same Greek word. It's, it's that parakaleo that we see. You only get comfort, friends, brothers and sisters. You only get comfort if you have the comforter. So you need to know Christ and Him crucified. If you want comfort from above, you have to receive it from above, which means you need to know Jesus from above. He has to come and change your life. So there's comfort because of who God is. There's also comfort because of what God has done. Look at what God has done for you. Start back, look at back in 2 Thessalonians Start in verse 13. We ought, always, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Let's just pause right there. Like He loves you. He loves you. Who is He talking about here? Some people might think, well, um, no, He's talking about the Father, but, but He's not. Okay, um, The vast majority of the time, that word Lord, kurios, in the Greek is used, it, it, it refers to Jesus. And notice the change here if we read through it. But we always uh, ought always to give thanks to God. That usually refers to the Father. So he's got the Father in mind for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. He's switching to Jesus. And then he goes back because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Then he mentions the Spirit a couple, couple words later. So here he's, he's specifically talking about the love that Jesus has for us. What's in view here specifically is his saving work on the cross. Jesus loves you. It sounds pretty basic. They, we sing a song about it. Jesus loves me, this I know, right? But Jesus loves you enough that he went to the cross. Jesus loves you enough that he laid down his life for you. Jesus loves you enough that he bore your sins on him. Jesus loves you enough that he suffered the wrath of God poured out on him because he wanted to redeem you, a people for his own. So he started and he finished the work the Father asked him to do. That's how much he loves you. But, but there's more. But wait, there's more. 
<clears throat> the shift here from God to Jesus, it, it, it's intentional. I mean, that makes sense, but I just want to make sure we get that. I mean, yes, God loves us, and he could have just kept going with that theme of the Father loving us and the Father choosing us and the Father doing that. Those are true. But the shift here is intentional because God wants us reassured that Jesus, okay, listen, that Jesus, who is coming for his own people, what's this whole passage about? Like Jesus coming back, right? What was he telling the Thessalonians in chapter 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians? Jesus is coming back. So the shift here is intentional because God wants us reassured that Jesus, who is coming for his own people, amen? He's coming for his own people, and he will destroy the wicked, that Jesus loves us in particular and will keep us safe until the end. Jesus loves everyone, yes, but he has a special love for the church. And he is with us from the beginning to end. There's an additional reason this phrase is used. This exact expression, beloved by the Lord. Some versions just say loved by the Lord, that's fine. Beloved by the Lord, this exact expression occurs only one place in the Greek Old Testament. You know where it occurs? It's in Deuteronomy 33. It's where Moses is blessing. You know, his time is wrapping up. He's blessing each of the tribes of Israel. He's given a blessing. He's given a blessing. He's given a blessing. And this is the blessing that is given to the tribe of Benjamin. They are told, oh, of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord. That's how he starts it. Now think about that for a minute. What tribe was Paul from? Tribe of Benjamin. You guys are like, need a little more coffee today. All right? <clears throat> He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Think of that. When, when, when Israel was one kingdom... And the kingdom split. How many went north? Ten. Okay. How many stayed faithful? Two. You can do the math on that, hopefully. All right. So Judah becomes what we refer to as the southern kingdom. And then you see once that split occurs, you refer to the northern kingdom as Israel. That can get a little bit confusing if you don't know that when you're reading your Old Testament. But Judah is referred to as the southern kingdom, but one other tribe stayed faithful, and it was the tribe of Benjamin. That's why Paul, in Philippians, when he's kind of like, you know, writing out his pedigree, and uh, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews and all that, and he's like, of the tribe of Benjamin. Like, he's kind of proud of that, and that's okay. He's from this tribe, the tribe that King Saul came from, the tribe which he explicitly identified himself. He obviously would have been very familiar with this blessing upon his own tribe. Beloved by the Lord. And here Paul takes this ancestral blessing and applies it to the converts in Thessalonica. They, like him, are loved by the Lord. And we, like him, are loved by by the Lord. Even further, countenance this. This phrase, loved by the Lord, is so striking because it provides another example. We saw a couple in 1 Thessalonians. It provides another example of how Paul takes language originally applied to Israel. Okay? He's talking to the tribe of Benjamin. 
He takes this phrase, beloved by the Lord, and what does he do? He reapplies it to the Christian church. All right? Like, put that in your pipe and smoke it for a little bit. That's pretty powerful. So, we are beloved by the Lord. Jesus loves you. You're his beloved. It is a special love that he has for his church. All right? I... I have a neighborly love. We're all called the first greatest commandment, love God. Second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So like I, I have a neighborly love for ladies, right? Walking out the second greatest commandment. But I have a special, a unique love for my wife. That is how it is with Jesus and his bride. Yes, Jesus loves people, but he has a special, unique love for his bride, the church. So hear this. The Father loves you. The Son loves you. The Spirit loves you. The triune God loves you. Now that's just one thing. We just got to beloved by the Lord. We're still in verse 13. One thing that God has done for you. Just one. And that, that's pretty amazing, right? I mean, think you can handle more? What else has God done? We'll keep going on, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you like you are His. And He doesn't unchoose you. He chooses you. So He chose you. How did He choose you? As the firstfruits to be saved. Like they were one of the first to come into the kingdom, right? The firstfruits to be saved. But wait, there's more. It keeps going to be saved through sanctification, Look, He's making us holy. He's making us holy. Holy, holy, holy is God. And guess what? He's making you like Him. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. He called you. To this He called you. Like God offers a general call to all and then a specific call to those that He are claiming for His own. Receive that call My friend, if you don't know Jesus today, receive the call that the Lord gives to all. Here it is, a special call. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, these two short verses, they cover the whole work of our salvation from the eternal choice of God to our final redemption and glorification when Jesus comes back. Like, that's a pretty long time. Like, when God chose us, all the way through the end. From the beginning to the end. I mean, this is a huge statement about salvation and the work of God. It is nothing less than the combined activity of the triune God. What does the Father do? He chooses. What does the Son do? He loves. What does the Spirit do? Sanctification making us holy. Each member of the Trinity has a distinct role in your salvation. So the Spirit, it says, through sanctification by the Spirit. I mean, what does this even mean? Here's what it means. Genuine conversion includes the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. A saved life is a changed life. 
So don't water down grace. Don't water down the gospel. Don't water down the power of God. If he has saved you, he has changed you inside and out. A lot of times when we, when we learn and we hear about sanctification, we hear that it's this on, ongoing progressive thing. That is true. But there's actually, well, there's really three aspects to sanctification. The one we, we really focus on is the middle one, where God is, is sanctifying us. But there is actually a past tense idea of sanctification. We're just going to look at it briefly because I want you to, to get a hold of it, because I want you to understand this truth that like, if you have a saved life, you have a changed life. Look at 1 Corinthians. Hold your place in 2 Thessalonians because we're coming back. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's a great section. We're just going to back up a couple verses here. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. Actually, 26. This, light, this verse was, was instrumental uh, in, my, in my walk with the Lord. And Invite me out to lunch sometime, and I'll, and I'll tell you. But verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Uh, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I mean, you read that passage, right? And it's all about God, right? All about God. God choosing us. Who are we? We're the foolish. We're the weak. We're the low and despised. That's us. Why? So no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then look at this in verse 30. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Notice what is sandwiched in between righteousness and redemption in verse 30 sanctification okay when you get jesus you get all of this that's what you get what do you get you get the wisdom from god you get the righteousness you get the sanctification you get the redemption that's very beautiful you get all of it look uh five chapters later in first corinthians 6 we'll see the same thing He's reading in verse, verse 9, <clears throat> or he's, excuse me, he's writing in verse 9. I'm reading in verse 9, chapter 6. And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And then look what Paul says God did for them. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. All of these things in the past tense. Things that God has already done. He's already washed them. 
He's already sanctified them. He's already justified them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there's a past tense when we talk about sanctification. If you are saved, you have been sanctified. Yes, hopefully you are growing experientially in that sanctification. And one day you will have a realized sanctification. When you are in God's presence, you'll have a realized sanctification. You will be made holy. Right now, we're in that middle one. We are being sanctified. But don't forget that God at one point sanctified you. So listen, there is no genuine conversion, no genuine conversion that does not include the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It's just not possible. You can't read these verses and come away thinking that. You just can't. Sanctification is part of regeneration, is part of justification. Okay? They go together pretty well. So, one of the things that Paul is doing here back in 2 Thessalonians is he's giving them theology first. A whole lot of theology. Like a whole lot. A whole lot. Uh, we could spend weeks on 13 and 14. So he's giving them theology first, and then he's going to apply the, the theology. One of the things we need to make sure we do is learn the truth about God and then see how it applies to us. These verses are driving us towards the final part of being comforted in verse 17. But we must make sure we know the theology behind the comfort. We must first learn the theology and then we apply it. We must first see who God is. We must first see what he has done and then we apply it and then we understand how we are comforted. Now, some people go around making applications about all sorts of things without ever taking the time to study and learn. I mean, they're, they're just shooting from the hip. If Paul's approach was to go light on the doctrine for young churches... Like, think of all the theology we'd be missing. Because, friends, the New Testament churches were, by definition, very young. Very young. I mean, uh, how old is this church did we talk about? Weeks, months at the most. Months at the most. And that is true for many of the churches. They're just a couple years old at most. So if Paul's approach was to go light on the doctrine for young churches, we wouldn't have much deep theology in the New Testament. Why? Because these churches were very young. By extension, the people in the church were very young in the faith. So don't try to use the excuse, oh, doctrine really isn't for me. God thought it was good for these young believers. He thought it was good for these young churches to be taught it, to learn it, to study it, to know it. Therefore, it's good for us to be taught it, to learn it, to study, to know it. It's in his word. That should be good enough, right? So when, you know, when we pick a book for life group, or maybe I'm going through a sermon series on a particular topic, and you're like, oh, that's just not my thing, Pastor. Well, it's God's thing. So if he spoke it, he meant it. And if he spoke it, he wants us to know it. And it's important for us to learn. So, so don't just like suck on the baby bottle of Christian theology. That's a good starting point. But transition quickly to drink from the deep well of gospel truths. Don't, don't splash in the puddle of surface theology. A lot of people do that. Okay? Facebook, there's like a whole lot of splashing. But jump in the ocean. 
Jump in the ocean. Paul says, here's what you know, here's what I've taught you, now let's apply it. You want to apply it correctly, you've got to know it first. You've got to understand it. Then you apply it properly. Listen, understanding these two concepts gives us the foundation for comfort. There's one more, what God will do. We're going to look at that next week. But who God is and what God has done are key for us. I mean, you want to talk about us combating apprehension, uncertainty, anxiety about the future? Like, what will happen to us? What will we do? Like, if you get your eyes, like, off of Christ for a little bit, and you just take a little peer outside into, like, the global affairs, it can be a little uncertain. It can be a little unsteadying. Look, God has this from beginning to end. He who created the universe knows how to bring it to completion. He who created you knows how to th- see you through to the end. Your end, if you're a believer, your end will be way better than your beginning. Okay, This, God tells us in 2 Corinthians, this right now, the worst of the worst of the worst it, it can get, he calls light momentary affliction. Well, you're like, it's not very light for what I'm going through. Well, no, because he compares it to the weight, he says, of glory that awaits. So everything that we're going through, I mean, I, I, I'm not discounting, myself included, have been through some pretty painful and tough times, and so have, have you. But he's saying that when you compare it to what awaits us in heaven with Jesus at his side, the glory that we will have, it says it right there in 2 Thessalonians, what are we going to do? We are going to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14. Okay, that makes this look light compared to the weight of glory that awaits us. You want to put all that God has for us, everything that's in store for us, the glorious end, it like weighs a trillion tons. And what we're going through right now compared to that is like a little feather. Why? Because we can't even begin to scratch the surface of what God has in store for us. Like we, we, we read through Revelation and, and some people think they got a good hold of it. Ain't nobody got a good hold on it, okay? <clears throat> we're just scratching the surface. We're, we're just scratching the surface. I'm, I'm reading through Ezekiel right now, and he's like talking about the cherubim and like wheels and wheels inside of wheels. Like he's trying to describe things and best he can, and it kind of comes out like not making sense. <clears throat> because he's seeing like this vision of how amazing it is, how amazing God is. He's like kind of like awestruck and a little dumbstruck. Like he's just speechless, and he's trying to describe the amazingness of God. Words, in one sense, don't do it complete justice. We will have to experience it for ourselves. What are we doing right now? We're seeing through that glass dimly. Guess what? Even looking through that glass dimly, it looks pretty amazing. I mean, right? So let's like remove that glass. Like, you know, we got some, cu- some you know, gla- dim glass or whatever that's called back there. There's probably some proper name for it, but behind our sound booth, right? Someone's standing on the other side. You can see when they walk back, walking back there, you can see something's going on. I mean, that's like us. I mean, we, can, we see through the glass dimly. Like we know, we see the figures in the shades, right? And one day, I mean, that's going to be removed. 
we will see face to face. Man, what a joyous day, right? What a joyous day for us. And if you are in Christ, that'll be a joyous day for you. You will have Jesus right before you. The one that you love, the one that loves you, you will have for an eternity. To enjoy him, to enjoy the Father, to enjoy the Spirit. That will truly be an amazing day. So I encourage you, that's comfort right there. Take comfort from that. Be comforted by the God of all comfort, who always, always, always is with his people. He's always with his people, and that's us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you comfort us in our affliction, that you're always with us, that you walk with the downtrodden, the outcasts, that your heart is for them, and we are the downtrodden and the outcasts. Thank you that you saw us in the midst of our sin, and you chose us. You saw us fallen and deserving of your wrath, and you redeemed us. You saw us deserving of the worst of consequences, and yet you gave us the best of the best, you. Thank you, Father, for your rich mercies that you pour out upon us. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Thank you that we're found in you and that you're found in us. And thank you, Spirit, for continually working in our lives from the first point that we believed and were regenerated. You sanctify us and you keep that work going on. Thank you, Spirit. Lord, let us receive the comfort from above that comes only from you. Apply it to us completely and holy, God, that we might be comforted by you, the triune God. Amen.